Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Joining me this morning is Jeff Haley, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. The crew here have crowned him the brain. How are you, Jeff? Good, thank you. It's always <laughs> flattery to get you everywhere. <laughs> now, fans of the show know every time we have you on, Jeff, we divide the program into three parts. The narrative, specific stocks and investment areas, and a lightning round. We don't do this for just any guest, but you're such a good sport with great insights. So, are you ready to begin? Let's do this. <laughs> Let's start with the big picture, the S&P 500 trading at record levels. In fact, this year, we've witnessed the shortest bear market of all time. Just one month, the S&P 500 up nearly 38% since hitting a low in late March. The Nasdaq doing even better, up nearly 70% in the same time. But as we know, the economy is still in a recession. Tens of millions of people in the U.S. are out of work. The COVID-19 pandemic still not under control. So I know that the global economy and financial markets are two different beasts. But why are markets doing so well? What gives? Yeah, I guess one way to look at it is it was the shortest bear market of all time as well. Mm. So it's the shortest. So I think the underlying reason here is that central banks around the world have cut rates to either negative or zero. There's a world savings glut of money looking for a home. The yields are 0% in the bank. And that money is looking for a yield anywhere. And that squeeze of that wall of liquidity is looking for a home. And, and it's flowed into stock markets, it's flowed into property, it's flowed into precious metals, or very much like the price action after the global financial crisis, actually, where we saw much the same thing, but this time on steroids. So this is the underlying driver. And until interest rates around the world start moving higher, then I think this is the, going to be our new normal. So aside from easy money, is there a narrative, is there a story that justifies this market performance? Yeah, the market is very good at uh, taking a look at the price action and then making a story to fit it, unfortunately. Mm. And I think uh, in this particular case, there's been a lot of talk about this Nirvana-like V-shaped recovery that the world may encounter. I, I think this is a hopelessly optimistic. The best we can hope is for an elongated U-shape. And I believe that the, the downturn will continue into 2021 until we get that vaccine out on the markets uh, and across the billions of people across the world. So the markets are really pricing in in the pretext of being forward-looking mm. that the mark, that the global recovery will, will, will happen faster than expected. Jeff, what do you think are the biggest risks now for the bull market? Well, the first one would be that none of the COVID-19 vaccines under development actually work. So that would definitely be a, a huge setback. The second one would be the U.S. presidential elections coming up in uh, November. And uh, the third would be a, a much larger deterioration in international relations between mostly China and the United States, which sees barriers erected on a much larger scale to world trade, which the world can ill afford at the moment. All right, last question on this topic. And to borrow a phrase from the former Fed chief, Alan Greenspan, are we witnessing irrational exuberance or are the markets fairly priced? <laughs> it depends on your point of view, but I would say we are witnessing uh, irrational exuberance. But I will come in with another phrase mm. that the markets, can, uh, the, the markets can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And uh, I think this is... What you need to understand is that the underlying driver is low interest rates in this wall of liquidity, and thus uh, the markets 
can remain irrationally exuberant for quite some time to come, and I think that will be the case. Sound warning there. All right, you also coined a great phrase in your uh, note to the world yesterday, the U.S. dollar has left the building you started with. So I want to turn to the currency markets now. The U.S. dollar index is down more than 6% over the past three months. Bloomberg writing that after nine years of strength, the greenback is, quote, being assailed from all sides. And yet interest rates in the U.S. are down, and that might make the U.S. dollar less attractive, but rates are down across the globe. So you analyze currencies for a living, Jeff. Walk us through this. What is the case right now against the greenback? Well, well, let's think about yield differentials. So yes, yields have fallen. At the beginning of the year, US yields were higher than most of the G10 currencies. Now, and particularly against the euro and the yen, for example, that, that differential is now zero. Yields have fallen in the United States as the Fed is engaged in this huge path of monetary easing. Uh, to, to support the economy during COVID-19. So the yield differential has narrowed and that has made the US dollar much less appealing. Also, the recovery seems to be taking uh, foot in parts of the world such as Europe and and China and parts of Asia. Country uh, areas that went into COVID-19 sooner but appear to be recovering sooner and that's also caused some flows. In the background, there's also nerves that the huge amount of quantitative easing that is being done by the Federal Reserve will debase the currency. So by issuing, uh, buying $7 trillion worth of US financial instruments, that they are actually debasing confidence in the currency. So it's a combination of all three of those. So when we see US share prices rise to record levels and the US dollar weaken, is there a contradiction? And wouldn't higher equity prices drive demand for the greenback? Well, if you um, were to look at the uh, US dollar and you were buying stocks in US dollar terms and you're sitting in Europe or in Japan, you're probably going US stocks still look quite cheap yeah, because your currency is stronger. So you get mm. more alphabets or more fang stocks for your dollar. Right. And I think this is driving part of it. So from, from, a, from a currency point of view, mm. it's not necessarily the case. They may look overbought in US dollar terms. But in other currency terms, they look a lot more sensible still. In your view, are we seeing a short-term sell-off in the greenback or are we at an inflection point? Is the era of the strong dollar over? I believe we are at an inflection point. I think the era of the strong dollar is perhaps not quite the right term here. I think the US dollar will still remain the world's reserve currency and it will do so for the foreseeable future through the next decade at least till the 2030s. What we are, I think, seeing is a turn, a structural turn in the value of the dollar, and we're going to see the U.S. dollar move into a longer-term downtrend. The U.S. Fed will be keeping rates lower for longer, and they will continue to uh, engage in quantitative easing. The world recovery will be slow, and it will probably accelerate faster in other parts of the world than the United States. So I I believe we are seeing a structural turn in the dollar, but mostly it's driven Mm -hmm. by the the fall in the yield differential versus other currencies. All right. You mentioned earlier that the U.S. elections are a risk for U.S. stocks. What about for the U.S. dollar? Does it matter who wins in terms of the U.S. elections from the market's perspective? Well, the data seems to suggest not. What we will get is some pretty extreme volatility just before and just after these results come out, much like we did in 2016 with President Trump's victory. But in the longer term, U.S. elections don't tend on as singular events 
to impact the, the US dollar on, on, on a long-term basis. It's usually confined to uh, short-term volatility. All right. So we see the dollar depreciating against the euro and the yen. How is it doing against emerging market currencies, Jeff? That one is interesting, actually. Generally, emerging market, and I'm thinking particularly of a developing market, Asia, right now, generally they have appreciated against the US dollar, but not nearly to the same extent as we've seen in the, in the G10 space, so to speak. So we've seen a quiet or a, a steady climb higher by most of them, notable exceptions being the Indonesian rupee and uh, the, Indian, the Indian rupee which have both got challenges, but certainly the Filipino peso, the Singapore dollar, Malaysian ringgit have all quietly moved higher. And I I think this gives central banks around the region more more room to ease monetary policy. But certainly there's a lot more caution in the emerging market space as as yet, because I think we need to see more evidence that the world is recovering from COVID-19 before we start seeing an acceleration of flows into those markets. Jeff Haley, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda, is our special guest today in Money and Me. Bottom line for investors, Jeff, those with at least a one-year horizon, would you hold on to the greenback or put your money in other currencies or maybe switch in and out taking a different time frame as your guide? Switching in and out makes you more of a trader than an investor, and I Mm. think it's very important to differentiate these points. And I think it's also important that nobody ever gets the absolute high of a move Mm. or the absolute low of a move. So when you're an investor, you, you take a longer-term view. And I don't think that switching in and out is necessarily going to be constructive. I believe that uh, the US dollar will continue to weaken, though, across uh, 2021. All right. I have one more currency topic for you before we move on to other sectors, and we will. This one, really a primer for our listeners. We talk about the US dollar index in the news all the time. For example, to note that it's trading near a 27-month low right now. It suffered its biggest monthly loss in July in more than a decade. But what exactly can you explain is this index? It's not an exchange rate. It's made up of components. So I looked them up. There are six currencies in the index. No surprise, the euro, the yen, the British pound among them. There's also the Canadian dollar, Canada, one of the U.S.'s biggest trading partners, so I get that. But then there are the Swedish krona and the Swiss franc. So why is the krona part of the index? Well, in the 1970s when it was created, Americans love Volvos and ever is what I would say would be the simple <laughs> answer to that one. It was made up of a very broad basket of currencies, actually, and there's another reason why that, that, that's a much smaller basket. Now, it came into being just after the end of Bretton Woods where they removed the gold standard backing currency issues around the world. And so it dates back to 1973. Sweden was a large trading partner of the United States at that stage, and that's why it's in the index, although there is a lot of argument now that it should be removed uh, and that the index should represent China and Mexico and South Korea and all these emerging uh, nations that have uh, come to the fore since then. Right. Would that also explain the historical context why the six currencies are not equally weighted? The euro accounts for 57%, the yen just 13%. So why so much weighting to the euro? This all comes back to the start of the euro. So before the euro, we had German marks, we had lira, we had French francs, we had Netherlands guilders, all of these currencies that we've sort of forgotten now, but they were all individual currencies within the European Union, and they were all individual components of the index. So when the, end, when the euro came into being, all of those individual components 
got lumped into being a euro, and thus we have such a high weighting in the index of the euro now. Thanks so much for that, Jeff. Let's turn to corporate news and your take on some specific stocks. Jeff Haley, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda, joining us in Money and Me this morning. Let's start with Alibaba, the Chinese tech giant. This morning announced its profits more than doubled in the second quarter of this year, thanks to strong online retail sales and its cloud computing business. Its retail sales are even back to pre-pandemic levels. So is this a sign that China's economy is experiencing that V-shaped recovery? In, in some ways it is. I think what it's showing is that the online e-commerce consumer model is accelerating in power because those uh, numbers aren't necessarily being reflected in bricks and mortar retail sales. People aren't necessarily going out to the shops and buying. Instead, we're seeing this uh, constant uh, or inevitable trend of buying online. Lots of uh, people in China don't really want to go out for obvious reasons. They're doing their shopping online and having it come to them mm. rather than them going out to the shops to buy stuff. And I think that's what that reflection is. What do you make of Alibaba's business overall at this point? And do you have any concerns that the Trump administration might blacklist this? Is this on your radar? Not really with Alibaba because I don't think it's intersecting directly with some of the more frontline, shall we say, issues between the US and, and China. Uh, yeah, their delivery business is very much China-centric. Uh, so is, is the cloud computing, although they are. I think if that starts evolving into a much larger scale internationally, then we may see some pushback there. Uh, they also have Ant Financial, which is very much China-centric, although it does have international offshoots here and there, and it is about to float on the Hong Kong exchange. So I, I think Alibaba itself is still reasonably insulated from uh, U.S. sanctions because the, the multiple streams of its business don't really intersect strongly uh, with uh, the United States, like, say, Huawei does, uh, for example. So uh, in that respect, they've managed to, to, to dodge a bullet, and I think that will be the way it continues. But I do think that as a structural investment, uh, Alibaba is certainly one of the better ones out there. So Alibaba shares currently trading around 255 Hong Kong dollars per share, up 23% so far this year. At these levels, do you think Alibaba is a good buy? I think uh, it, it's, still, uh, it's still worth putting in your investment portfolio. If you look at the winners in the, so we say, the Western world, it's big tech, it's your Amazons, etc., uh, etc. Et We've seen JD.com, which is a competitor of Alibaba's, also doing very well. There's a clear mega trend here, and I believe that your JD.coms, your Amazons, your Alibabas are all part of this mega trend. So from a long-term perspective, I see no reason to not own Alibaba. All right. Alibaba is listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, as you mentioned. And this week, we've learned that despite all the political and social turmoil in Hong Kong, the exchange is having a good year. It booked a profit for the first six months. Earlier this year, the Hong Kong Exchange also appears to have wooed away one of Singapore Exchange's partners, MSCI, which is taking the popular indices over to Hong Kong. And this morning, we learned SGX has moved on, not want to be caught in a relationship rut. It is is tying up with the FTSE Russell. So, Jeff, which company is coming out on top here, SGX or Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing? I think it uh, depends on your point of view here. If you're looking at uh, IPOs, straight IPOs, then Hong Kong is the clear winner here. And I think Hong Kong's role going forward, despite all these issues that we've seen in the last year and accelerated this year, is that Hong Kong 
will be positioned as China's gateway to the world. And Hong Kong's going to pick up every major IPO of every large Chinese company that wants to flow and access international capital. And in that respect, it's certainly going to uh, beat uh, the uh, SGX hands down. SGX has had a great year as well. Uh, and uh, as, as you said, they're tied up with this uh, FTSE uh, Russell indices uh, to replace the MSCI ones that they've, uh, that they've lost. Can you help our listeners understand why this relationship with an index provider is so important? And why an exchange, why couldn't it just create its own indices or products around them? Okay, so the MSC and the FTSE Russell indices, followed by international uh, fund managers from across the globe, and there's probably trillions of dollars that are invested in replicating these indices. Mm. Uh, so this is how fund managers manage their portfolios or their, some of their investment strategies. So when you have these listed on your exchange, you therefore get a lot of international money coming in uh, to the exchange to replicate these indices. So uh, yes, there's a prestige thing as well, but uh, these are internationally followed indices with, as I said, trillions of dollars tracking them. And when you lose the listing for that, then obviously you lose less interest in your exchange. So uh, I have to applaud SGX for moving quite quickly here to um, to replace the, the FTSE, uh, to replace MSCI with the FTSE Russell indices. Mm, Jeff Haley, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda, joining us live from Indonesia. Next on my list of companies to ask you about this morning, uh, Jeff, is Airbnb. It's planning to go public just a few months ago. That would have been really hard to imagine. After all, its valuation dropped by more than 40%. It laid off a quarter of its workforce. What do you make of its business, particularly given that the COVID-19 pandemic is not over yet? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm really impressed here. I would have thought that they would have been uh, one of the least likely uh, companies to be IPOing, along with say a US cruise line company or something. So uh, all, all kudos to them for that. I, I think that uh, Airbnb, you need to look past COVID nineteen. You need to look at this as a recovery play, uh, and, and that's how I think how the market will be positioned. Uh, the pricing will be interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't see them getting the pricing that they would have got a year ago. But if they price this. IPO sensibly, then investors are going to go, well, this is priced sensibly and it's a recovery play looking past the end of COVID. There's a very strong business in there and thus it makes a sensible investment. And I suspect that's the mentality that uh, Airbnb have taken into this IPO as well. And I think it'll be a huge boost for confidence for IPOs in the US if they get it away at at a sensible price. All right, Jeff. Are you on holiday? Are you taking time out of your holiday to join us? I am indeed. Oh my goodness! But Thank you're you so, so special, much. Michelle. Oh. You're so special, you guys oh. over there at Money FM. That I, uh, I'm prepared to interrupt it. Oh, thank you so much because I can hear these serene sounds of rainforest coming through. You know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. We appreciate it. Okay, next on my list of companies. Well, let's just move on to the lightning round so Jeff can get back to his holiday. I want to ask, uh, get your quick impressions on these investments with the US dollar in the doldrums. What is the best safe haven investment? Gold. All right, you've been bullish on the Indonesian rupiah. Is it still a good investment? I'm wavering. Really? What currency would you buy instead? Uh, again, I think you need to stick to euros and actually the, the Thai baht and the Malaysian ringgit. All right. When it comes to U.S. tech stocks, overpriced or still good value? Still good value. Apple, still a good buy or not? 
It's the apple of my eye. <laughs> Another question about Apple. It took just two years for the company's market cap to double from one to two trillion US dollars. How long do you think it's going to take for it to double again? I think this one, it'll be harder to get from two trillion to three trillion. Mm. Uh, I'd to, I wouldn't want to put a timeline on it, but mm. uh, yeah, it, it, it's going to be a harder road from here. All right. Another breakthrough point. Okay. Emerging markets or US stocks? US stocks. Major economies are contracting at double-digit levels. When will they start to go up? I think in the last quarter of the year and into the first quarter of 2021. You have just been so generous with us. Please enjoy the rest of your holiday and thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure, Michelle. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Jeff Haley, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda in Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.